Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10? Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 10. Any kids here? Kindergarten or second grade can head off to Children's Church if they'd like. Just a reminder, if you have little kids, uh, we opened up Vacation Bible School registration last week and it's almost full. So I think we have 40 spaces left, so we'd hate to to not have some of our church family kids have a space at VBS. So if you have a kid would like to be in Vacation Bible School, um, definitely get on the horn this week, send an email, call the church. Registration fills up fast and then we're out of space. There's a familiar theme. Revelation chapter 10. Now, God's Word is so powerful. The Bible is so powerful, it affects our lives in dramatic ways. You know, one of the uh, real blessings of getting to teach God's Word, whether you do it as a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or whether you lead a Bible study or whether you're just at home with your kids reading the Bible, just the, the joy of reading and teaching the Bible to others is, is just watching how it affects people. You know, the Bible has a kind of, uh, let's say, sort of a viral quality to it. That once through the Holy Spirit, it gets into your soul, it just goes crazy. And, and even as a Bible teacher, you, you sort of have some hopes for people, and yet the Word of God does even more than you could have hoped. And it affects people in ways you didn't even intend. It's just amazing the way the Word of God works. Um, and so as we uh, look at God's Word here in Revelation, we find the same thing is happening. Revelation is affecting our congregation. I don't even know how all the ways it's going to affect us yet, but God's Word as we sort of study through it section by section, it's affecting us. And I think one of the ways that Revelation has already been affecting our congregation, at least one that I think I've observed, is that it's creating a fresh concern in our church for the salvation of people who don't know the Lord. That one of the things I, I think I've observed is that Revelation has been stoking the fires of urgency in our church to share Jesus with people that we love who just need Jesus as their Savior. Um, and I think part of that is because Revelation very much sort of pulls us out of the mundane and the, the habitual of this world, and it shows us the eternal perspective. Revelation shows us that there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. It shows us there is an eternal life through Christ and there is a great terrifying day of judgment coming. And because we have this eternal perspective on things, we have a burden for those who don't know the Lord. I was at our uh, 5 o'clock worship service a couple weeks ago. Um, Some of you know we have a 5 o'clock worship service. We actually don't have it this Sunday because this Sunday at 6 p.m. we have... uh, our own Pierre Fontaine is going to be doing a concert here for uh, sort of a benefit concert for Haiti and the church there we're, we're helping to uh, rebuild. But, um, but normally we have a 5 p.m. service and it's a really cool service. I don't teach. We don't do much singing, but we have a discussion about the text. And so people bring their questions and observations. So we spend about half the time studying, talking about the text, and then we spend about half the time praying. But anyway, so a couple of Sundays ago, we are talking about the text, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, which is one of those scary hellfire and brimstone passages in which 
you know, people are fleeing from the wrath of God on the judgment day. And so I came to the five o'clock service to see, you know, what people want to talk about. And I thought we were going to get into the interpretation of the passage and what this meant and what that meant. But it was really interesting. The, the whole conversation went in a different direction. And the main thing people were taking away from it was just a fresh burden for people they knew who needed the Lord. And so I kind of just did a time out on the discussion. I said, look, could we just sort of change gears here? Let's just spend some time praying for people we love. And so we spent time praying, you know, just by name for people that we were concerned for. Neighbors, family members, spouses, children. And, and so I, one of my prayers is that, that God would be stirring up in our church a fresh concern and urgency for the gospel to go to people who need to hear it. And so I bring that up because I think that's really the thrust of this chapter we're going to look at this morning, Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10 is a kind of interlude within the, the series of trumpets. If you were here last Sunday, you know, we studied the first six trumpet judgments. And then after this comes the seventh trumpet judgment. And so chapter 10 and 11 are sort of a pause within that. But not only is chapter 10 a pause within the trumpet judgments, but really chapter 10 is kind of a, an interlude for the whole book. It's sort of the, uh, the midway point of the book. And here we take a pause and, and John receives a fresh commissioning to go out and be an ambassador and a prophet for the Lord. So John was commissioned in Revelation chapter 1 to write down the words of the prophecy and then all these things are happening, strange visions we've been wrestling with. And then in chapter 10 it's like a breath and a fresh wind of commissioning comes to John, a fresh command to go out and keep spreading the message. And so in many ways, I, I, uh, I hope that as we study this text, there will be a fresh command upon us to go out and be His witnesses. Because what I find in my Christian life is that my zeal for evangelism very much ebbs and flows. That there will be times I'm concerned for people. I'm praying for my loved ones. I'm, I'm reaching out. And then I'll just get you know, busy with far more important things, you know, my life. And I'll get busy with things. And my zeal, my concern for people just drops and I get busy with my life. And I almost need God to just, you know, like the spring day we had here, just open up the fresh air of the Gospel in my heart again and say, wow, this message is so critical. And I'll have a fresh, you know, uh, concern for people again and a fresh urgency. And so I think that's what's happening here. That's sort of the application for us. So, with all that being said, let me just read the text and then we'll break it down and look at the different parts of it. Revelation chapter 10, I'll read the whole chapter. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as He announced to His servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and 
asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Well, another doozy here in Revelation. (laughs) The first four verses start off with a bit of a mystery, a couple mysteries actually. This huge, mighty angel comes down from heaven. And with his appearing, we're already hit with two puzzles as to how to understand this verse. The first puzzle is, who in the world is this angel? You know, first you read it and it says, I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. You say, oh, okay, it's an angel. A lot of angels in Revelation. They're flying all over the place. Here's another one. It's a big, mighty one. And, and so if you just left it there, it would seem fine. The problem is that as the angel is described in the following verses, he's described with attributes that in Revelation are only applied to Jesus or to God on His throne. So it makes it a little more confusing. I mean, check it out. He's robed with a cloud. Jesus is the one who comes in the clouds. He's the Son of Man, the cloud rider. Uh, there's a rainbow above this angel's head. The rainbow appeared earlier in Revelation chapter 4, and it was around God on His throne. Um, you look there, His face was like the sun. That's used to describe Jesus back in chapter 1 when Jesus gave His first command to John to be a prophet and to write the book of Revelation. And it says Jesus' face shone like the sun. That's Christ's glory language. His legs were like fiery pillars. Again, Jesus had feet like burnished glowing bronze in chapter 1. It goes on to say He was holding a little scroll. You think of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5 opening the scroll. And so here's this open scroll sort of in a kind of a miniature form. Um, it says that he planted his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. You know, you know, that's a stance of authority. To have your foot on something in the Bible is to have power or control over it. So here's this being who really has basically authority over the whole world. His one foot is on the sea. His one foot is on the land. He stands there like a great colossus ruling over all creation. And even his voice, he shouted and his voice was what? Like a lion. You know, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. That's how He's introduced to us. In the Old Testament, it says that God roars like a lion. It's just what, a, what an image. What a sound. If you've ever heard a lion roar, it's a sort of a terrifying, sort of visceral sound that, that, uh, that shakes us in a kind of primitive way. Here's God. He's this great, powerful lion. So if you were to take out the very first sentence of the first verse and just kind of put your finger over it and to read that description, you'd say, who's that? You say, well, that's God or Jesus. But then you open up and you go, well, wait a minute, it's an angel. So which is it? Is it an angel or Jesus? I've come to the conclusion that it either has to be an angel or Jesus. So um, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Uh, Big breakthroughs like that for you. Uh, If it's an angel, then it's, um, you know, if it's an angel, it's probably a very, 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 very important angel who is described with heavenly divine language to show the weight of his commission. Another interpretive option is that it's Jesus, but he's being described as an angel like the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. You know, I don't know if you ever read the Old Testament some, and there's this weird character who pops up all over the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. And you think it's just an angel, but then the angel is worshipped 
And the angel is sort of viewed as God himself. And, and from the New Testament, we look back and we say, I wonder if that was God the Son pre-incarnate appearing. It's interesting too. notice that, that this angel has legs like fiery pillars. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord went ahead of the Israelites like a pillar of fire. So it's possible that that's what it is. Probably if I had to be forced into a corner, I would lean more toward Christ as the angel of the Lord here. But the point is, this is not just any rank-and-file, run-of-the-mill angel. This is an angel to whom we have to listen. This is an angel who comes with heavenly power and with a message that cannot be ignored. This is not an angel bringing a suggestion or an idea. This is an angel bringing a command that we have to listen to. The second mystery about this angel is this whole thing with the seven thunders. you remember that? Verse 3, when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. So, so what are those seven thunders? Probably the best theological answer I can give is I really have no idea. Um, I don't know, because he didn't write it down. <laughs> Why didn't you write it down? I don't know. Uh, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say probably it's another one of these cycles of seven. We had seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven thunders, but God just didn't reveal what's in that. And again, it, it just highlights His sovereignty, that ultimately God is sovereign. And, and we, just, we have to honor Him and submit to Him. And if He doesn't tell us, then we don't know, because He's the Lord and we are His people who honor His name. But what's more important is not what was said that we didn't understand. It's what the angel says and we do understand, which is verses 5 to 7. It says, Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land, this huge, giant, powerful, authoritative angel, he raises his right hand to heaven. So he takes the posture of an oath, just like we do in courtrooms. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. This is an oath posture. And it says in verse 6, He swore by Him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And here's what He said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound His trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as He announced through His servants, the prophets. So the message of this angel is that when that seventh trumpet sounds, time is up. There's no more delay. Literally in Greek, it's there's no longer time. Time's up. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, we studied the six trumpets, these trumpet judgments that come. And we didn't get to the seventh one because now we hit chapter 10. But when the seventh trumpet comes, it's over. And God's purposes will be accomplished. Um, God, God has set a timeline and then, and then it's done. And you know, it's, you see, it's what He announced to His servants, the prophets. So in the Old Testament... You had Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and all these prophets. And, and they sort of saw all this stuff from a distance. It was way off in the future. They saw that someday a Messiah would come, that someday uh, the kingdom of God would come, that someday the world would be judged. And, but for them, it was like way, way out there. But now for us who live after the, the coming of Christ, we're now in that final period. We're in what the New Testament calls the last days, the end times. You know, the end times is the entire period from the first to second comings of Jesus. It's the last chapter in the great story of redemption that has been going on and on. So, so in the timeline of redemption, starting way back from Adam and Eve, and then you know, the, there's Noah and the patriarchs, and then Israel and Moses, and then Israel falls apart, and then Jesus comes, and then Jesus is raised, and then He starts His church, and then it goes on and on and on, and then someday it comes to an end. You know, we're somewhere in here in the timeline. 
I don't know exactly where. No one knows the exact day and the exact hour when Christ is coming back. Uh, I was, I've been reading through uh, Matthew with my two littlest kids, and we were reading through Matthew 24 where Jesus makes it plain. No one knows the day or the hour. And uh, my mom is here in town this weekend, and my mom was talking to one of our kids, my little five-year-old, and was saying something about, you know, Jesus coming back. And she said, do you know when he's coming back? My five-year-old said, Nana, nobody knows that. So, uh, <sighs> pastor's kids. Anyway, um, so, so there's a day coming. We don't know when it is. But right now the trumpets are being blown. Right now the seals are being opened. And someday Christ will return in that seventh trumpet is done. And so, so there's a sense of immediacy and urgency. Time will be up. It will be no more. And then we're done. So what the prophets of old saw way off in the distance through glimmers, you know, glimmers and images, we're hurling toward with a kind of eschatological urgency here in the last days. And at some point, whether it's 50 years from now or 200 years from now, but that's it. That's the end of the story until God creates a new heavens and a new earth. So it's sort of a, it's really, there's an urgency in it and a, a nowness to what's being said here. When that trumpet is blown, it is done. Isn't it amazing to think that God is going to bring the world to a conclusion in judgment? Now stop and think about that. This world that we just all take for granted as normal and here, that goes on and on, the, the seasons go on and politics go on and business goes on, there is a point when God says, that's it. And when God is going to come back to this world that has just dissed Him and rejected Him, this unbelieving, unrepentant, Christ-denying, um, self-righteous, self-sufficient world, there is coming a collision day when God's justice and holiness will say, you know, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And there's a day of judgment coming. There is a day coming when the door of the ark shuts and the waters come down. There is a day coming when, uh, you know, Lot and his family have got to be yanked out of Sodom and Gomorrah because God says that's it and Sodom and Gomorrah will be overthrown. This world has become a Sodom and Gomorrah. This world is like Jericho, sealed up against God, resistant against God, and the trumpets are blowing. God is sounding His warnings. And when that seventh trumpet sounds on the last day, the walls of Jericho will come tumbling down and Jericho will be overthrown. There's a day of judgment coming. It's pressing in on us. And there's nothing that can be done to stop it. The White House is powerless to stop this. Congress can't stop it. Not even with parliamentary tricks. <laughs> you know? The UN has no resolution to stop the coming of God's great day. The United States military, with all of its power, cannot stop it. The Taliban can't upset it. It's just, it's going to happen. If God had a stopwatch, it, it would, and you could look at it, it would have a countdown timer counting backwards. And you would see what the time is left, and who knows, but God is at work and He has His purposes and we're moving toward that day. You know, are, are you ready for that day? Do you even believe? Do you even believe that God's coming back? I mean, it's something to wrestle with. I think probably a lot of people in America, the conventional wisdom is that God doesn't judge anyone because we're all so wonderful. <laughs> so people even have a, a, a problem with judgment. Like, oh, how could God possibly do that? Uh, but it's coming. 
People in churches don't believe this day is coming. There are pastors in pulpits who don't believe this day is coming. You know? I just read a, an interesting blog by the uh, president of Southern Seminary. His name's Al Moeller. He has a radio show. He's just a really interesting thinker. He writes a regular blog. And uh, he, he just talked about the study that was recently released about uh, atheistic pastors. Pastors who've come to lose all their faith, but who keep doing their job because, well, you know, you need a paycheck. But, so they, they sort of feign belief and they feign the language of religion, but privately, off the record, they'll tell you they don't believe any of it. You know? You know, what do we believe? This day is coming. It's coming like a freight train and it cannot be stopped when Christ returns. What I think that means for us as believers, among many things, is that it should create in us an urgency for the gospel. As we look at the fact that Christ is coming, we have to be ready and we should care about people. You know, this gospel message is the message for the world. And so there should be a fresh urgency in us for people. And like I said, I find that my urgency for the gospel often ebbs and flows. There are times when it's stronger and there are times when it goes away. And, and I think one of the things Revelation does is it wakes me up. It says, Jeremy, the time is running out. Do you, do you care about people around you? There's a famous uh, Scottish reformer during the Protestant Reformation in England and his name was John Knox. Maybe you've heard of him, sort of a famous reformer. John Knox was a, a Scotsman, and uh, he was part of that 16th century awakening in England. And he, he had a prayer for Scotland. This is how his prayer went. It's very simple. It went like this. Lord, give me Scotland or I die. That's his famous prayer. God, either you give me this land for the Gospel or just take me out. Because I'm going crazy. You know? Like, whew. Like, when's the last time? I, I think I've had that fire in my belly, but it seems to just pass away. Like, I need to be caught up with that kind of fire. Like, Lord, give us the South Shore or we die. Lord, give me Hanover High School. <laughs> or Lord, give me, you know, uh, State Street Bank or wherever you work. Lord, I, I want people to know you, Lord. Is there that same gospel urgency? Lord, give me my wife. Give me my grandchildren. Or I die. Do I pray with that kind of zeal and faith that God really can move in people's hearts? You know what I do? I pray for people, then I get tired because I'm like, well, they didn't get saved, so <laughs> I can't keep praying for them. i got things to do. And I think sometimes God convicts me of that. He's like, I didn't ask you to stop praying. You've got to keep praying here. How long do people pray for you? <laughs> keep praying. And, and I need to keep that urgency going in my heart and that zeal. Because the time is short. Because Christ is coming back. And so there's even more concern. And so that's what you see in the following verses. In verses 8-11. to 11, Is after this announcement, this reminder of the conclusion that's coming to the story, then John is recommissioned. That's what's interesting here. So first he's told the seventh trumpet is the end, time's up, the dinger goes off, and that's it. The turkey's done. You know, the, the world is bankrupt, God has begun foreclosure proceedings, and it will be time to pass all the papers and be done with foreclosure when Christ returns. So what's the response? What are we supposed to do in light of that? Get busy, back to the task of sharing this amazing news of Christ as the perfect Savior. So look at verse 8. 
Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. He said, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. That sounds like a kind of daunting task to go up to Godzilla, the angel, and, uh, excuse me, sir, can I have the, the scroll you have there? But he did it. He said, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Now, what is that all about? I I don't know. I read that. I'm sorry. I just kept thinking sweet and sour chicken, you know, (laughs) Chinese food. Like what? I want some sweet and sour chicken now. I'm hungry. The sweet and sour scroll. This little scroll and it's sweet and sour. Like, what is that? And why does he have to eat the scroll? I mean, this so, it seems so strange. Well, this is actually language taken straight out of the Old Testament. Like, so much of Revelation. The images are just taken from the Old Testament and applied in, in fresh and complete ways. So I'd like to just look at that text with you. I think it'll make a lot more sense. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 10. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 2. It's on page 821 in your pew Bible. We'll read about the sweet and sour scroll here. Ezekiel chapter 2, page 821. Ezekiel 1 and 2 is the story of when Ezekiel was called to be a prophet. And so, here we have John being recalled or recommissioned or reauthorized to be a prophet. And so he draws upon Ezekiel's prophetic call language, prophetic commissioning language. So if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 1 is Ezekiel having this terrifying vision of God's glory. Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 1, God speaks to him and says, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among you. It's a good reminder. we just got to be faithful with the message, whether people listen or don't listen. You know, It's like as a pastor, I have to be faithful to the message. Whether the church grows and we, does a building project, we do a building project, or whether I get fired because I'm preaching the gospel. <laughs> it's irrelevant. I know pastors who've had both experiences being faithful to the gospel. You know, but our, our job and your job as you talk to the people you love is just to be faithful with this message. And so jump down to verse 9. It says, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which was unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. So this is sort of a bad news judgment scroll. And he said to me, here we go, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat the scroll and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So eating the scroll symbolizes taking the message in so that you can go deliver it to someone else. That's what it means. Then he says, so I opened my mouth first too and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat the scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Ah, so there's the sweet. Where's the sour? I think it's back in verse 10 of chapter 2. On both sides of it were written, written words of lament and mourning and woe. So it's sweet because it's God's Word. God's Word is just sweet. 
Even last Sunday, I think when we studied the first six trumpets, which was really dark and heavy, it's still sweet. There's something, even when you read the worst news in God's Word, it's so encouraging and it's edifying and it's, it's God's Word. It's life-giving. It's joy-giving. But it's also sour because there's bad news. There's also, in addition to message of salvation, there are warnings against sin and judgment. So if you go back to uh, Revelation 10, John eats the sweet and sour scroll. It's sweet because it's God's Word. It's sweet because there are visions of heaven and in our eternal home for those who come to Christ. And it's sour because there are warnings of judgment and woe. And, and it's sweet and sour. I think Revelation is sweet and sour in the extreme. I was reflecting upon that. And I was thinking, you know, even the gospel message that we have to preach as believers, the gospel message we have to share, is a sweet and sour message. And that if we're really faithful to the biblical gospel, we'll be faithful to both the sweet and sour. The recipe that, that we concoct will have both sweet and sour in it you know you think of the gospel there's sour in the gospel if you're going to be true to the biblical gospel there's the message again that we are rebels against god that we deserve judgment that you know we're not spiritual (laughs) everyone says i'm spiritual no you're not do you worship jesus no you're not spiritual (laughs) you know the holy spirit makes us spiritual and the holy spirit brings us to christ so from a biblical perspective spiritual means to be filled up with the holy spirit and with the spirit of jesus so we're sinners we're rejected we've rejected god and so god's wrath is coming against us hell is is below us and its mouth is opening to receive us that's the sour news and we can't leave that out of the gospel nor can we then leave out the sweet part of the gospel which is believe it or not god's own son came to die for us the, the prince came to die for the insurgents against the king. That Jesus on the cross took the judgment and the hell and the, sin, the wrath that I deserve. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And now He reigns over heaven and earth. That's the sweet of the Gospel. We have to be faithful to that whole message to present the Gospel well and, and for it to have its power and its effect. I was even thinking... Our response to the gospel is a mixture of sweet and sour. You know, how does a person become a Christian? We talk about being a Christian, but how do you do that? Is there a ritual? Is there a pill you take? Is it like the Matrix, you know, the red pill makes you a Christian? Or the blue pill, you can still be a heathen or whatever. I mean, like, what do you, like, how do you become a Christian? Is there some class you have to take to be a Christian? What did Jesus say? He said you have to do two things to become a Christian. Repent and believe. It's something that happens in your heart. There's repentance that's sour. Like, I have to admit to God, I've been wrong. (laughs) I am a sinner. I haven't lived my life to honor you. My life has actually been quite destructive, and I'm honest about it. God, forgive me. That's the sour. It's admitting our sin. But then there's the sweet, which is recognizing that there is a Savior whose blood on the cross is more powerful than my sins. And that by putting my trust in Him, not in my own self-righteous, not in my own man-made religiosity, but by putting my trust in Christ, there's forgiveness. It's a sweet and sour gospel. It's a sweet and sour response to the gospel. So to be faithful, we need to preach that message. And, and when that sweet and sour, when we really understand it and embrace it, it makes us want to talk about it. Evangelism flows not out of guilt, not out of some program your church forces you to do. True evangelism comes when we treasure afresh what the gospel has done in our own lives. When I treasure Jesus afresh and what he's done for me, I want to talk about it because it's great news. 
sweet and the sour together, the whole thing. I remember there was a brother here in our church uh, who, uh, when he before he came to know Christ, he was wrestling with the gospel, and and he was great. He he was a South Boston guy. I'm not going to try to imitate his accent, but he was just saying he's saying, look, he's like pastor, I may receive this gospel, he said, but I just want to let you know, I'm never going to tell others about it. He goes, and I said, okay, whatever, you know, whatever you think, and uh, and sure enough, he received the gospel, and sure enough, you can't stop talking about it. It's not something you choose. It's, it's when it gets in you, when you've been stunned by the message, you just want to talk about it. And when you don't talk about it, you're like, you feel like you have pent-up frustration. Like, mm, I want to talk about the gospel. You know, you hang out with someone, you hang out, you watch Patriots, baseball, whatever. You talk about everything. You go home and you wanted to tell them about Jesus and you couldn't. And it's like, man, I'm so frustrated. I didn't get to tell them about the most important thing that's just been burning on my heart to talk about. We talked about everything else. That's what the gospel does. It, it puts a burden in us because of what the Holy Spirit has done. And so, last verse, John is sent back out. Then I was told, you must prophesy again. A fresh wind of prophecy authorization. Go, John. You need to go again to many, and prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You need to keep speaking. Now, of course, John's commission is not our commission. We're not apostles. We're not prophets uh, in the sense of this. We're not called to write Scripture. But we have been commissioned. Every believer has a commission. And let's just think about, maybe that's a good place to close. What is the commission that Christ has given us? And it's the Great Commission. So let's, uh, let's land this plane on a familiar runway. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. It's on page 989. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he went back to his father's side. Page 989, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Verse 18, when Jesus came to them, this is famous last words, when Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ has all authority. He's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. He speaks authoritatively to us. And what he has to say carries more authority than what the culture says. And even though we live in a postmodern, relativistic, believe what you want, make up your own truth, nothing is true except what's true for you, garbage culture, with all that baloney. It doesn't matter what the culture says because Jesus has the authority and He's giving us a message that we have to speak. Even if our culture says, you can't do that. That's not politically correct to actually believe uh, things that are true for everybody. You know, it doesn't matter. Christ has commissioned us to speak. And what is it we're supposed to speak about? He says, verse 19, therefore go. That's the first thing. We've got to go. That means I, I actually have to turn my TV off and go somewhere. <laughs> I actually have to interact with people. I actually have to get out of my carefully worn and constructed ruts that are safe and protected and, and break across the social boundaries and engage people that scare me or, or just, you know, I'm an introvert and so I don't want to talk to people. I have to go. I have to break the boundaries. And I have to make disciples of all nations. We have to tell others about Christ and see others follow Him from all nations, you know. 
Think, think about all the nations represented here, even in our church. You know, Philippines, Iran, Haiti, America, Chile. You know, people in our church, Japan, China, from all these different nations are here. And, and we're here. And all of us have come from different places. God is doing a work among the nations. It's really amazing. And we as a church have to have a vision for the nations and for a multinational kind of ministry because Jesus set an, an international agenda for us 2,000 years ago that He's accomplishing. So make disciples of all nations starting with the South Shore of Boston, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Apply to them the sign of discipleship. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, then your old life has to be buried in your new life in Christ. You're raised again. That's what baptism symbolizes and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then I love this last sentence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's with us. Until when? The end of the age. When the seventh trumpet blows. And at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the Great Commission is done. That's great. Our missions committee actually has an end point. We're not going to need a missions committee at that point. <laughs> We're not going to need missionaries. We're not going to need short-term trips. It's done. When the last trumpet is sounded. And, and then God's mystery is complete. Who has the Lord placed on your heart to reach with the Gospel? Is God stirring up some, something in you to reach out to somebody? Is there a name or people? Maybe there's someone that you have been praying about, but you're like me, you just get tired of it. You're like, look, I prayed enough, I'm done. Maybe God is saying, ah, 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 keep praying. Keep reaching out. But Lord, I've talked to them who knows how many times in 15 years. They're just not listening. Keep reaching out with the Gospel whenever God gives you a chance. Keep praying. Don't give up yet. Be faithful. You know, we're building this building. It's really cool. But like, why are we building it? So we can reach out more effectively with the Gospel. You know, it's like, imagine this room. Okay, let's pretend we're in the new sanctuary, Okay. All right, so the, uh, you know, the fog machine is over here and the jacuzzi is over there. <laughs> Kidding. Um, okay, so imagine pews, empty pews now, uh, going over here and empty pews going over here. And now here's what I want you to imagine. Who are you praying will be sitting in those pews? You know, like that's what we've got to be thinking about. I mean, it's great to build a building, but if God isn't building within us, a fresh urgency for evangelism, then what's the point of the building? It's like a shell with no, no soul. The soul is the gospel. The soul is Christ in us, not walls. Walls are exciting if it's full of life. Otherwise, walls are just an empty hall. And so that's what's exciting about that. Who is it God is putting on our hearts to reach with the gospel? We have Easter coming up a couple Sundays from now. I mean, that's a great time to invite people to church. You know, I'm gonna, if you want to know what I'm going to preach on, I'm going to preach on Revelation 11 on Easter, verses 15 to 19. So you can start praying about that. The seventh trumpet, when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God. So be thinking about that. Who would you invite to church? Who are you reaching out to? Or maybe the first step for us is just to pray that God would awaken, reawaken something in us again. You know, what are we so afraid of? Why am I so afraid to share the gospel? I'm worried what people are going to think of me. The world's going to go away. <laughs> Why am I worried what the world thinks? 
I just need to love people. And humbly, graciously, not obnoxiously, we're not self-righteous Bible thumpers. We're just beggars going to the other beggars, telling them where we found the, the bread of life. That's all. And saying Christ, Christ is the one, not us, not our church. So we need to preach the Gospel. Or maybe you're, where you need to start today is just to receive that scroll yourself, receive the Gospel yourself. Have you ever eaten the Gospel? You were talking about being an ambassador for Jesus, for, for the King. But you can't be an ambassador for the King if you're not a citizen of the Kingdom. That's the first step. Have you come to know Christ yourself? Have you put your faith in Him? So, brothers and sisters, may God fill our church with fresh enthusiasm for the amazing message of salvation. May revelation stir our hearts. May God fill this place with His Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us the south shore or we die. And God, give us zeal for that prayer. Lord, plant new churches. God, breathe fresh life into other churches on the south shore. God, breathe fresh life into our church. Lord, save a people for Yourself. God, stick the, stick the, the fire rod into our hearts and stir up the embers that are about to go out, Lord. Put fresh wood on the fire so that we might have that fire within us again for those who need to know You. And Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know You, God, I just pray that they would take and eat the Gospel message, that they wouldn't just hear it, but that they would receive it, that they would repent and believe and meet Jesus for the first time. Lord, we love You and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.